Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that today we're going to have um, a really interesting perspective. So kind of like going from corporate to the entrepreneurial type of journey. And uh, I think it's uh, it's exciting. I mean, I myself even recognize myself with that because I went from being a lawyer, which is a little bit more a little bit more on the boring side, but, but I went at it as well. Uh, and, you know, with that, with that being said, I would like to welcome Mike Ellenbogen to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. So so I was very excited to have you here. And, you know, it was very interesting when I saw that you were for about 17 years in corporate America, and then you went at it uh, with the entrepreneurial journey. So so tell me a little bit more about, you know, how did you take this leap of faith? How, this, how did, did this come about? Well, I always wanted to start my own company. I don't know why. Uh, I've always loved building things. And eventually I knew I would start my own company. Um, I happened to watch my father do it. And I think that was certainly uh, influential in the way I thought about it. My father started his own company uh, when I was in high school, uh, starting high school. And I remember him walking, you know, business plan around to a few neighbors and looking for initial capital. And then he came home one day and said, uh, there's this new thing called venture capital and explained what venture capital was. And I was able to watch him start uh, one company and then he sold that company and then started another. So I guess I learned that these things, you know, don't just happen by magic to other people. You know, there's, there's a process that you follow. And, you know, if you know your space well, and can find capital for it, then, you know, you can make something like this happen. So, you know, I started in corporate America. I spent the first eight years of my career with uh, analog devices, a semiconductor company, and then joined an imaging technology company called Vivid Technologies, which we eventually took public. So we were doing x-ray imaging of various types of things, but also we're the first company to do automated detection of explosives in suitcases. Uh, this is after Pan Am 103, the Lockerbie bombing. So that's the industry I found myself in. And that led to the uh, starting Reveal Imaging, my last company, and then subsequently Evolve. Got it. So I guess before we talk about Reveal, what, what kind of like roles did you have in, in, in these companies that you were involved with? Um, I mean, I guess that, you know, this would help us, you know, understand, especially the listeners understand like how that, you know, those, those skill sets were shaped up on, on your end before you went at it. Sure. Yeah. Like I said, I, I love and always have loved building things. I have a physics degree from Colgate University, but knew I wasn't going to be a physicist pretty early on. So I got, when I really started my career, I wanted to get onto the, um, you know, the business side of technology. So I started in a marketing role, a product marketing role with analog devices, which is a, was a fantastic um, way to learn a lot about a bunch of different industries. They did everything from, you know, A to D converters and D to A converters for CD players. And wow, that that's a throwback right there. I mean, even saying CD players, um, but audio and video to, uh, you know, instrumentation for 
industrial applications and and military. So had a really good introduction to a broad range of industries. Uh, and then, like I said, I joined Vivid Technologies. Uh, I was focused on selling. And I think anybody who really wants to start a company should spend some time carrying a bag and selling. So I spent most of my time in Asia Pacific selling technology for aviation security um, and then took on the marketing and business development role at um, at Vivid. So you know, I have a technical background, but like I said, really got into the business side of, of technology, spent some time selling. I think that prepared me a little bit better for a broader role. Um, once we took the company public, we actually wound up selling it to Perkin Elmer. Um, Perkin Elmer merged us together with another division, and I was VP of um, sales, marketing, R&D, and engineering. So again, kind of a growing um, level of responsibility across multiple functions and in, within, within the safety of a, of a bigger organization. Got it. Got it. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that as a founder, you really need to know how to sell. Uh, I think that that's uh, that's critical. So I guess uh, let's go let's go to the um, to the first initiative here to reveal how how did how did reveal happen? Yeah. So you know, I started reveal in 2002, and like I said, I had been in the security industry for a while. 9/11. Um, happened, there was a completely new legislative requirement for uh, in the United States to screen the suitcases, the checked baggage going into the belly of the plane. So the very high level of requirement from, at the time, um, the FAA, now the TSA, for what this screening process has to look like um, and what technology is required and the tests that it has to pass. So I had spent the last um, seven or eight years in the industry so I guess I, I felt like I had my my obligatory 10,000 hours in aviation security. So I decided to um, start Reveal. And what we did was come up with um, kind of like the network of PCs as compared to the mainframe. So at the time, there were these big million-dollar scanners. Um, and if anybody who's listening remembers the immediate response after 9-11 was to put them in the airport lobbies and to have people carry their own bags over to these scanners. And everybody saw that there was an opportunity or a need to integrate them into the flow at the airport. But that required spending anywhere from three to $5 million in construction and conveyors for every one of these $1 million scanners. So it was hugely expensive in infrastructure. So at Reveal, we developed a smaller, cheaper, lighter network of systems that you could sprinkle around any place the airport wanted to bring bags in and really eliminate or significantly reduce that infrastructure cost. So we started the company in 2002. Um, over the next seven years, we raised about $23 million in, um, in venture capital and then sold the company to SAIC in 2010. Got it. So I see as well that um, you had top tier investors, obviously, but I guess, I guess before we talk about the investors, what was the founding team? What did the founding team look like at Reveal? Yeah, we started with a group of people who had worked together for quite some time and really knew the industry. There were actually, so I started the company, but we pretty quickly pulled together a core group of five people who knew the customer well, um, who knew the technology really well meaning we had 
built systems that had to uh, had to accomplish this task and had to pass the various tests um, that TSA was you know that sub- would subject us to, uh, and brought that that capability into Reveal from day one. So we had you know before we had a product, we had really three marketing people. So we were, it was a little lopsided, but it was the core team that I knew could realize this vision and not only that, but convince others that we could realize that vision. Got it. Got it. And I see as well that uh, you did multiple rounds. So you did your seed, series A, series B, series C, and you got investors such as Greylock, Flybridge. I, I actually know these this two um, VCs, great folks in there, and then also a general catalyst. So how did you find those investors? Uh, I had a, a CFO, a friend, actually a neighbor from across the street. When I was working on the business plan, I asked him if he would, he was a former CFO. Um, I asked him if he would be willing to help me out with the numbers. So he wound up, you know, I remember us sitting at the kitchen island, working on the business plan, looking through the numbers. He had folks that he had worked with in the past, uh, specifically at Greylock and, um, and some of the uh, venture firms that had spun out like Flybridge. So we was able to make some initial warm introductions. Um, we met with uh, folks at probably over time, 30, 35 different venture firms. Um, and believe me, uh, you know, walking in, telling people you're going to make a, you know, a bomb scanner for airports. Um, very, very few v- VCs had anybody with any expertise in, in the field. Most of them had no interest in doing anything with um, that was government related. So there were a few that were intrigued. Um, I think they were impressed by the team we put together and, you know, our backgrounds and our commitment. Um, and then, you know, they were willing to roll up their sleeves and do some work and really understand this market opportunity um, and helped us, you know, put, put a little sand in the sandbox so we could actually uh, develop and bring to market the technology that, is now screening millions of bags every week at about 300 airports across the U.S. Got it. And I mean, this is a pretty impressive roster of uh, of investors. So is there any trigger, Mike, that uh, you guys had, you know, in the business while executing that you said, okay, now is the right time to bring in VC and, and scale this up? Um, we knew we would need VC from um, from the get-go. You know, we did a kind of a classic friends and family round to, to get started. Um, we borrowed free office space. Um, we kind of scratched and clawed to, to pull together that initial um, system and prototype. And during that process, we, we started talking to VCs. Uh, it's an expensive proposition developing, you know, this is, these are $400,000 scanners. So it was expensive to develop them. Um, we knew we would need venture capital we also got some government funding along the way, which helps in a couple of ways. One, it's non-dilutive funding, um, but also it helps demonstrate to potential investors that you know there's there is interest from the customer behind it. So that was a uh, that was helpful as well. But you know we knew we'd need venture immediately after closing our friends and family round. We started talking to venture capitalists, and um, you know we're able, like I said, to find a few that, uh, you know, really believed in the story and wanted to join the, the venture. And you build it to uh, over $100 million in revenues. Is that right, Mike? That's correct. Yeah, in 2010, we did just over $100 million in revenue. And I guess, how, how, do you, how did you see 
the process of valuating the company? Like, what were those investors looking for? Like, for example, like at a seed or then, you know, at a series A or at a B or at a C round, like what, how did you see the, the due diligence or their focus shift as the company was maturing over time? So I was always surprised at the, the process of, of, you know, placing a value on, on a company. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, what's, what's the market clearing price is the way to, the way to think about it. Um, in a series A or even a seed, probably a series A, um, you know, typically the investors are going to look for somewhere around half the company. Therefore, um, the valuation, I think you back into it. Uh, how much do you need? And expecting to give up half the company, what's the valuation got to be? So that's um, probably not a particularly satisfying answer. But it's, yeah. uh, I think it's an inexact science, especially at the early stage. Everybody's yeah. looking at, you know, own as much of the company as they can. So it's a bit of an arm wrestle. Got it. I hear you. And, and I guess the, um, the business later was acquired by Science Applications International. So what, what kind of multiple do you give back to, to investors? Our investors got about 8x their money back. Got it. Not bad. Not bad at all. And were you always planning to sell the business? Yeah, I think when you once you take venture money, um, you know, you're you've you've charted a path that you're going to come to a fork in the road at some point. You're either taking the company public or you're selling it. Right. It's not going to be a lifestyle business. Um, there's an ex expectation of, you know, that you're going to provide a return to these investors who've, who've taken a risk um, with you. So it's got to be you know one of those two things. I guess there's a third option you know, which is a, you know, a like a private equity recap, but, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, you're going to go down one of those two paths. Yeah. And, and what was the trigger for you? Like for saying, okay, now, you know, we need to take a look at, at perhaps, you know, exploring an exit. Yeah. So, you know, the multiple is going to be based on some, um, some multiple of either revenue or earnings and your growth trajectory. So we were growing like a weed. Um, we had, you know, our, our, obviously our, our revenue was growing fast. We also had great bottom line EBITDA. So we knew we were at the point where um, we would probably get the best potential return. And, you know, with a, and, and we had one significant risk is that TSA was our single largest customer. And that's always an uncomfortable scenario for, for, you know, for a business operator or an entrepreneur. Um, there's just too much, call it stroke of the pen risk. So that combination of, you know, things are going great. We're growing fast. Um, we'd had a couple of inbound inquiries, which often triggers, um, you know, investigation of the market. So that's really what uh, motivated me to suggest to our board that we look at the options of selling the company. Got it. So I guess once once you get the alignment from the board and, you know, you all agree, OK, let's let's take a look at this. Is there like um, do you bring on board um, uh, investment banker? Do you do it internally? So we used an investment banker, which I think was absolutely the right idea. You need somebody who's, you know, can create a little heat under the deal, but also knows the players and can run the run the process. Um, you know, if you're trying to run a business and with everything that goes along with that, 
also running the sales process, it's nice to have somebody else who is uh, experienced and knows the players, knows the process, and can really drive it uh, as a as a co-pilot through this process. And and talking about the process, how I mean, just recommendation for for others that are listening. How do you get alternative offers, right? Because at the end, you want to make it competitive. You want to create that kind of like a a bidding war type of structure, but how do you do that without really alienating uh, others? I think you're just very clear and honest with people um, that you're going to run a process and you put together a book that describes the company, uh, property is going to sell. So whether it's an offensive move on their part or a defensive move, um, then they know that there's a transaction that's going to occur there are dates to follow and it keeps the whole thing moving and it keeps everybody honest all the way through. Got it. Got it. And I guess the, the other thing is that, you know, you had really sophisticated investors uh, sitting on the table. Uh, yeah. And, you know, in many instances, unfortunately, you, you kind of like see how many of them um, have their own interest. You know, it just happens because they have their own LPs and, and all of that stuff. So did you experience any of that? So everybody comes to the table with uh, you know a slightly different perspective, but I have to say that I was really lucky, and I wish I could claim that it was you know forethought. Um, I think a lot of it was forethought, but you know not not from me. As I mentioned, our CFO at the time knew a lot of people in the industry, um, and you know we started with Greylock, who was you know really you know, one of the one of the, the best known uh, kind of really high class venture capitalists. They introduced us to a, to a few folks. We wanted to work with with smart money, people that had kind of been there, done that and were able to help us in you know, grow, grow, reveal. So we had people at the table, you know, like Bill Hellman from Greylock and Joel Cutler from General Catalyst and uh, and others who, you know, they this wasn't their their first rodeo. Um, they weren't looking for their first exit. Uh, they were willing to kind of follow the company and support the company through. You know, not looking back was you know it, it was a roller coaster ride like any other. Um, and they never once pushed me for you know for to to sell the company or pushed me for an exit. The questions I was getting was. You know, Mike, what do you think of the what what do you think is the right thing to do with the company now? Is it should we double down? Should we look at selling? What do you think we should do? Because you're closest to the business. And I really appreciate the fact that, you know, they were you know, that they were seeking guidance from me and my management team about what we should do rather than trying to push something to their timelines. That's fantastic, because uh, typically you don't you don't hear that on, unfortunately. And I, and I guess that. At the end of the day, it's it's really all a matter of trust. Um, without trust, there's nothing. And I think that that trust is really built by obviously delivering on your word and having that integrity. Uh, but but then also to have a really nice line of communication. So how how did you optimize for for that level of communication? How did you keep people in the loop through, let's say, the the exit? So once you get to the exit. Uh, the the frequency of communication tends to go up and, you know, you'll have a kind of a tiger team, a working team looking at offers and really following the process. Prior to that, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's all about honesty and integrity. So there's going to be good news. There's going to be bad news along the way. 
and you, you just have you have to share both um, when they happen uh, with your board, with your investors. So that's that's a big part of it. And you know, once you've built up that trust, you know, you spent a bunch of time in the foxhole together. Then as you get toward the exit, it's really about it's the tactical execution that you're focused on. Um, more so than, you know, getting everybody on board. Everybody should be, you know, together on board before you actually decide to pull the trigger and start um, start that process. And what was the timeline uh, in terms of the process from beginning to, to end? Um, it took about six or seven months, if I recall, uh, to, you know, from the point where we started circulating, um, you know, circulating the book to actually closing. Got it. And I mean, it's a, I've, I've gone through it myself. Um, you know, it's, it's incredibly stressful, um, going through one of those transactions. So just out of curiosity, how did you celebrate Mike? That's a great question. So I recall very specifically, so my, my father had passed away, um, just before I started reveal and I was a recipient of a, of a car of his, and I remember driving home after we got the contract signed um, and with the with the top down, playing a song that reminded me of him and uh, I think shedding a few tears, actually, um, thinking about, you know, what he had done and um, and, you know, what what we had uh, just accomplished. But uh, what a great way to honor uh, your father, Mike. That's saying uh, thank you for sharing that. So, so once the um, the deal was closed, you went then to to become an entrepreneur in residence with General Catalyst, which was one of your investors. So, what was the experience of being an entrepreneur in residence? Uh, it was a great opportunity to sit on the other side of the table uh, for a little while. So, we did about a year and a half, almost two years at, at General Catalyst as an EIR in that role. You know, you're looking at opportunities as they come in to General Catalyst or, you know, to the VC, sitting in and listening to pitches, um, providing whatever level of, you know, experience or expertise or connections you can to help evaluate opportunities, all while trying to figure out, you know, what you're going to do next or, you know, what, what as I say, uh, you know, what I'm going to do as I grow up. So it's a it was a really great opportunity to get your nose into a different deal flow um, and see what how things are evaluated from you know from the other side right from the investor's perspective uh, and then we got a lot of help in figuring out what what we were going to do next got it and you were here for a few years and then finally you go on to launch your most recent entrepreneurial journey I would say which is with evolved technology Right. And can you tell us a little bit more about the Evolve technology? Sure. So, yeah, in that two years at General Catalyst, I spent with my partner, Anil Chikara, who's our my co-founder and uh, our president. And we looked at uh, all kinds of different technologies. But what we were really focused on was sensors that could um, either actuate a service or a process. And my background had been uh, obviously in, in physical security so we came across some very interesting technologies that had been developed for IoT and cell phone technologies and um, you know laboratory instrumentation, uh, and we saw a need at the same time that the the 
sort of the terrorist targets and active shooting had had um, in in the U.S. Um, had really shifted from what historically had been hard targets like aircraft and government buildings and um, you know well protected targets uh, like military to soft targets. So we were looking at this variety of different technologies, including you know modern networking and other capabilities uh, and IoT, um, and how we might apply that to this changing landscape in the security industry. Um, you know, with the rise of ISIS and Al Qaeda uh, in Europe, Middle East, uh, Asia, Pac, and and that increase in active shooters here in the U.S., there was clearly a need for something that would do a much better job of screening more people more quickly, more securely for threats to a crowd or a venue, which were specifically explosives and firearms. So that's why we started Evolve, is to really enable um, our, our customers, who are security directors and others, you know, to make those places where we expect a level of safety, make them safe. Got it. Got it. And, and you've definitely done it again on the financing side. So how much capital have you raised so far? So we've raised $30 million so far, um, and we are just about to close our Series B. Got it. And did you find, because I, I typically see this a lot, so you see founders that that previously were at VC firms or, you know, that have some type of existing relationship, because when you go at it for the first time and you start knocking on VC doors, you don't have the the existing relationship and it's a real pain in the neck because you it's like a hundred rejections to get one potential yes. So did you find in your experience, Mike, that having that existing relationship with General Catalyst where you were working for, let's say, two years, helped in, in kickstarting a little bit the, the financing efforts? No, I would say it kickstarted it a lot. Um, okay. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, having the existing relationship helps a lot. Having had a successful exit helps a lot. Um, so, you know, as an EIR, you know, your operating assumption is you're going to go out and find the next big thing and the firm that you're working with would support that next big thing. So that's, that's why you do it. Um, and th that certainly was a case for Evolve. Um, you know, we had a, a vision that we shared with the folks at General Catalyst, the partners at General Catalyst along the way. And by the time, you know, the deal had kind of uh, come together, uh, you know, they were on board and we were very lucky to have um, support from a couple of other investors as well. I mean, like you said, it, Mike, I think that when you are a proven founder, you know, you've had an exit, you already have, you know, some form of relationships, you know, it, it definitely helps to to get things in motion. And I think that you, you know, I always say this, that it's like being in, in the cafeteria and, you know, now, you know, things have shifted that instead of you going to the table of the cool kids to ask for, for, <laughs> to, to, for permission to sit down, now you are actually sitting on the table and the investors are asking for permission to sit down. So I guess like uh, having this in mind, what you, you obviously had the opportunity to be a little bit more like pickier with who you would bring and, and putting your cap table. So what were you really looking for when you said, you know what, now it's time to get investors involved and this is what I want from them in order to have, you know, uh, to, to give them access? Yeah, it's, it's two things for me. People I, I trust 
um, and respect and people who can help us really figure out how to grow this business. Um, I was very, very lucky to form a relationship with Joel Cutler over years um, at General Catalyst. I uh, have tremendous respect for him as an investor and advisor. Um, so I was excited to have Joel on board. Um, I was also lucky to be able to work with Bilal Zuberi, who's now at Lux Capital. Um, Bilal was at General Catalyst as a principal um, while I was there as an EIR. And I always refer to, um, to Bilal, uh, Anil and I call him our co-processor. So Bilal was right there. We filled up a lot of whiteboards with a lot of ideas together. He then left and joined Lux as a partner, which is a great opportunity uh, for him. Um, and that was as our evolved deal was coming together. So we had General Catalyst and and Bill Gates um, both interested in uh, in funding Evolve. And I asked that we make room for Bilal, so make room for Lux, uh, just because we had spent so much time with him and had I have developed such respect for him, his vision and his ability to sort of understand markets uh, and technologies that I, I really wanted him on board, um, you know, as an investor, advisor and and friend, because, you know, you're going to be in this for, you know, for, for quite some time. So you want to work with people that, that you like and that you can learn from. And uh, I was very fortunate that we were in a position to, to be able to do that. So, Mike, I mean, I, I have to ask you this. I mean, you have the, the, the dream come true of any founder. You have Bill Gates as an investor. How did this happen, Mike? Uh, there was some overlap between some technology that we licensed at the beginning and investment that uh, Mr. Gates had made. So we were able to meet his team through that overlap. And I mean, I, without putting words in his mouth, you know, he, he likes to tackle, clearly likes to tackle big problems. Uh, you know, reinventing security, physical security is, is a big problem that can that can make the world a better place. So I think it was a, a pretty good fit. That's fantastic. And what 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 kind of um, of differences do you see from, let's say, engaging or pitching? family offices, let's say, you know, Bill Gates from, you know, the difference between pitching that type of profile of investor with pitching, let's say a VC, like what, what are the differences there? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I don't think I saw significant differences because, you know, that if you can imagine, you know, the, the resources that are available um, to evaluate an opportunity at, you know, a place like Gates Ventures are, are pretty significant, not not fundamentally different than you'd find at a, at a VC. Um, I have seen you know, huge differences in, you know, processes that are well managed or not well managed, that are respectful of the entrepreneur or not respectful of the entrepreneur. Um, and I, I think that, and it doesn't matter if it's a family office or, a, you know, or a, a venture firm, um, you know, having a, a, a clear, tight process, um, you know, enables a firm to stand out as somebody who, you know, respects what the entrepreneur is trying to do and the demands on your time um, and can therefore will also be supportive as a, as a partner in the long term. Got it. Got it. And, you know, obviously this time being your second rodeo, you know, I, I guess on the, on the first time, you know, there's, there's that, that steep learning curve. And I guess there's always a steep learning curve when you're 
building, financing, and, and scaling a business. But the second time, you know, it's it's a little bit easier because you already have your 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 stories that that you've learned a ton from. So I guess in in this time around, I mean, where were you seeing, you know, like certain uh, aspects that you were like, okay, you know, I know this, I'm gonna do it differently. Like, where do you feel that those lessons that you learned, you applied them the most when building this second business? What I learned through the first business is that, you know, the plan is never as linear as uh, as you're going to expect. You're going to hit peaks and valleys and you're going to have to, you know, figure out how to get to the goal. And that's entirely about the team, the team that one figures out what the product, the technology can do, uh, visualizes the product, can execute on it, can make something that works all day, every day in the real world. The team that finances the company um, it's really all about um, pulling together a group of people who can figure out where to, how to react to changes in, in, in the market, um, can figure out how to drive new technology into a space in a way that's you know, efficient and, and effective. I've unfortunately had you know, too many experiences where you know, individuals didn't work out. Um, whether it was, you know, fit or capability, um, and you have to uh, move on relatively quickly and bring bring in the, the people that can actually move the needle and elevate the game ac- across the board. So that's that was a goal from day one. And, um, you know, you're never done learning. Uh, there's always changes that you're dealing with. The market isn't necessarily going to react in exactly the way that you anticipate it will. Um, so you've got to be able to kind of uh, pivot with those those punches. Got it. And I guess let's say let's say really quickly here. So if you had the chance to sit down with your younger self, uh, let's say with with Revolve um, before you went at it, you know, with your first rodeo, what would be that one piece of advice that you would give yourself about fundraising? About fundraising. Correct. Um, good question. I would say, and I know this sounds trivial, but there's only 100% of your company to go around. So guard that equity very jealously. Make sure that you're partnering with people who are going to be aggressive in helping you grow the company, not just aggressive about how much of the company they they can own, um, and focus on you know execution. The quicker you get to profitability, the quicker you take command of your own destiny. I love it. I love it. And if we're shifting gears to acquisitions and, and M&As, what would be that one piece of advice to your younger self, Mike? Focus on the outcome of the deal, not necessarily just the price. Um, there are good buyers and there are buyers who maybe may not fit the company and the culture that you've developed. So the buyer is going to, the buyer's culture eventually is going to um, take over whatever it was, you know, the the, the company that they bought. So look for a good cultural fit. Um, If there isn't, then the company that you built eventually is going to be, is going to disappear. If you believe in what you've built, uh, if you're passionate about it, you want to find, you know, you want to find a good owner. So 
that's as important, certainly as the entrepreneur, that's as important, maybe more important than the, the ultimate number you get. Um, your investors may or may not agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you there, Mike, because at the end of the day, there's nothing bigger than, than looking back and being proud of, of what you've built and, you know, how others, you know, are continuing to, to increase that legacy that you're leaving behind. So I, I really love that, Mike. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Michael Ellenbogen. Um, I'm on Twitter. Happy to, uh, to connect with, with anybody who would like to talk. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for being on the show. It has been a pleasure. Alejandro, it's great to talk to you. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.